This is Impressive Growth Masters, the podcast created by marketers for marketers. Keep up to date with everything from retail to tech and beyond. Join your host, Robert Tadros, in conversation with CEOs, CMOs, and the true masters of business and growth marketing. Hello and welcome back to the Growth Masters podcast. I'm your host, Robert Tadros. We have a very special guest on the show today, a tech entrepreneur, author, blogger, and a leader in the field of search engine optimization. He was the co-founder and CEO of Moz, the SEO software tool, where he grew the company to 130 employees, $30 million in revenue, and over 30 million website visitors before stepping down in 2014. He's a frequent keynote speaker for events around the marketing and startup world, as well as a best-selling author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rand Fishkin. Um, yeah, man. So, like, I remember when I my first ever agency jo- agency job, we used to get together in a room, would put on whiteboard Fridays, and we'd sit there and watch Rand. Right? Like, is this, this is the guy that co-founded Moss? <laughs> it's like a hero back in the days when I was on the tools as an SEO tech. So. Yeah, I've been a big, big fan for many, many years. So honestly, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, incredibly kind and thrilled to hear that, Rob. Yeah, we have been talking at SparkToro about like, hey, how do we spin up some more video stuff? I think that feels like an area for future investment. Yeah, I think it makes makes a lot of sense. And I I guess I want to probably go back to early 2000s, right? So like... You know, you dropped out of university. You started working with your with with your mother at the time in a small marketing firm. What made you do that? I mean, I liked I liked building websites. I loved kind of the whole idea of the web, and I wanted a way to do that that was, you know, low risk. Like someone would actually hire me to do it. <laughs> so, you know, my mom was someone who would who would hire makes me sense, to do right? it. <laughs> yeah. Makes makes sense. And then and then later after that, I believe you co-founded Moz with your with your mum as well. Is that right? Yeah. So what basically happened is, you know, she'd been running this small marketing consultancy for a long time in Seattle, 20 years uh, before I joined and started building websites. And during that time period, we um, we did not have a lot of success. In fact, we went deeply into debt and just had a lot of financial challenges. And so we were we were building websites for clients and uh, outsourcing the the SEO and the marketing right. sides of things, but we couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors. And so it fell to me to learn the practice because we desperately needed that money. You know, we were in huge amounts of credit card debt, bank loan debt, debt collectors knocking at the door, that kind of thing. So, hey, Rand, you got to learn web marketing. You got to figure out this SEO stuff. And uh, that is what caused me to start the blog, SEO Moz, I think that was 2003. And then, you know, into 2004, it started on its own site. And uh, we eventually wound down the old web design marketing consultancy business and spun up at the time SEO Moz as its own consulting business around SEO, because so many people were coming to us for that process after I had started this website. 
Right. And obviously that transitioned over time into the software company that became Moz. And, you know, 2007, we raised a bunch of venture funding. I, I became CEO, you know, and then it, it grew from there. I think 2008 is when Whiteboard Friday started. Uh, obviously grew very dramatically over the next you know, seven or eight years and then kind of struggled to grow. After that, I, I stepped down as CEO and uh, left the company about three and a half years ago. Right, right. And then since then, you've, you've invested a lot of your time into the new venture, Spark Toro. Yeah, I, I did. I did, Rob. I took 12 hours off between companies. So, you know, I wanted to give myself a break. <laughs> so I, uh, I I started Spark Tour the next day. I think it, it really that was more of a personal psychological thing. Like I, I had such a kind of heartbreaking experience and really personally challenging experience, emotional experience leaving Moz, which was sort of a 50% I'm going to go start a new thing, 50% hey, you should go and do something else. And that experience was really painful. And so I just wanted something to jump into right away, somewhere to put my energy, something I could focus on that wasn't just frustration. And we, you know, we, we desperately needed money. You know, we had to pay our mortgage sure. and uh, get healthcare, all that kind of stuff. So it was like, start SparkToro right away. Yeah. And that, and that undoubtedly would have taken your mind off Moz to some degree, right? I mean, it's, I'm sure probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, probably till now, you know, I mean, it's, you know, starting such a successful company like that, it's probably in your DNA. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that it will probably take a bit of time to phase it out. And, and Rand, I mean, is that is that what sparked you to go, right, I'm going to write the book, Lost and Founder? Yeah. So I had actually started writing Lost and Founder uh, in my last couple of years at Moz. And my my hope that was that it would be something that was, you know, a little bit tell all, pull back the curtains behind the scenes, right? Here's all these challenging things that we've learned about, you know, this this whole venture-backed startup environment and, and building a scaling company, getting hopefully better and smarter at entrepreneurship and, and at least not feeling so alone when you're doing it. Because I think that a lot of entrepreneurs do feel very alone, even if they're not. It's, it's all the stuff that as entrepreneurs, I think, and business owners, sorry to cut you off, it's like, yeah. we know, but we don't talk about it. And it's like, you've surfaced it, right? It's like, here it is. It's, it's in a book, right? And it's like, I remember when I, when I read it, I was like, right. So I'm not going crazy. This is not just me. You're not the only one. <laughs> right. There, there, there is like hundreds of thousands of people out there that are in the same boat. And that was, to me, was a little bit, brought some relief. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I, I, a younger generation, slightly younger generation than I likes to say, I feel seen. And I think feeling exactly. seen, right. feeling recognized, feeling that you're not alone, that there are other people who have written about and been through and identified the things that you're going through is a very, very powerful uh, emotional response yeah. elicitor. And Lost and Founder was absolutely that, right? It, it is an attempt to help people feel not so alone for having these problems and maybe hopefully also help a lot of other entrepreneurs avoid them. Right. I mean, because, you know, I, I guess, again, as I interview a lot of CEOs and founders of, you know, big tech company, Forbes listed and so on and so on. One of the things that I've realized is that the vulnerability piece is, you know, for a lot, they struggle, right? Because ego gets in the way. Well, and I think I think incentives are a huge problem there. So, Rob, my experience from talking to a lot of, you know, folks in, in positions of power and influence is that the more power and influence and responsibility they get, uh, the less vulnerable 
they feel that they can be and the right. less that vulnerability comes out. I think part of that is that we generally as a society punish rather than reward vulnerability when it comes from people in positions of power and influence. Right. So, you know, I think we we reward it very much when it comes from individual contributors, people like performers, actors, musicians, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it is not well received from our bosses, from executives. And I have some empathy for that, right? I think that if you're in a position of power, especially if you are very wealthy and making a lot of money and being paid a high amount, mm. yeah, that <laughs> you don't get the benefit of the doubt, right? It's tough. And that's, it's tough, right? That That's going to make people feel alone. It's going to make them feel defensive. I, I do have empathy for folks in that role. And I also have a lot of empathy for the rank and file who's like, F that CEO. What's he making? Mm. Half a million dollars a year? And he, he's up there complaining about his emotional problems? Get out of here. Like, I have to pay right. rent. That guy mm. owns a million dollar house. Like, screw him. So yeah, I, I, I can see both sides of that. And do you think, I mean, Rand, do you, do you think it's because it's almost seen as a sign of weakness? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially by go try to raise money as a vulnerable, empathetic, emotionally honest CEO. Good luck. Yeah, you won't. <laughs> no. That is not what a venture capitalist, right? I mean, venture capitalists are essentially like the whole industry is based around the idea of discrimination for profit, right? Sure. I, I mean, discrimination of all kinds, but but mostly, yeah. you know, they call it pattern matching, right? Mm -hmm. So Rand, do you seem like the kind of dick that Mark Zuckerberg was? Sure. <laughs> and if yeah. so, you match the pattern. And, yeah. and if not, you don't match the pattern and you're not going to get the funding, right? And so no wonder Silicon Valley is is sort of, and, and the tech world more broadly, is filled with executives and CEOs and, and founders who've raised money, who look and feel a lot like a few archetypical, you know, tech founders that, that we can all identify, right? You, you sort of have this Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, like you've got that high ego, low emotional intelligence, high technical ability, usually from a upper class background, right? There's a trend, right? There's a trend. And and yeah, and investors, you know, investors will say, we are pattern matching, which is essentially just, you know, bias. It's all the isms wrapped into a culturally coded terminology that, that we find okay. We, we, we have the pattern exactly what we need. It's like working in the rack trade, right? We just need to go and match it. Right. So we're going to go shopping and try and find these individuals that match the pattern. And when we do, we know that our success rate is very high. And and that, <laughs> I, I think that's one of the strangest things about the venture capital world is that I, I don't think they would say that. Right. Well, not if they're being honest. Right. Because what they would say is our success rate is extremely low. However, <laughs> when we do get a success, it's so wildly, you know, uh, incredible in terms of, you know, dollars returned to the fund that we can invest in a thousand companies knowing that only 10 of them will make us any money. The other 990 will die trying and that's fine. The low success rate isn't a problem. It's how the game is played. It's an mm. intentional move, not a, not an accidental problem. Rand, I mean, you, you raised what, $30 million or so the first round? 29. Yep. 
tw tw there, thereabouts, right? So yeah. a lot of this was this based on this is experience, right? I mean, this is wealth yeah. of knowledge, right? And, and experience. And, you know, you probably paid the, the, the tough price for it. But it's like, did you realize a lot of this whilst going through the fundraising round that you just could no, not no, no. articulate it? Or is this like after the fact? Yes, yes. This is this is an after the fact realization. I, I I think that's why I felt so passionate about writing Lost and Founder, right? Is because I had this um, reflection, like you've reflected yeah. on, you know? Yeah, right. That, exactly, exactly. You're looking back on your past and you're saying, gosh, you know, all these things that are going on, the the challenges, the incentives, the structure, the decisions that we made. The why why did we do those things? Oh, it's because we had you know, raise money in this way and promised, you know, these types of returns and, and all that kind of stuff. And I want to be clear, Rob, I am not putting this on my investors. Hell no. Sure. They were 100%, yeah. a million percent supportive of whatever I wanted to do with the business. If I had told them, right. I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but I'm presuming that if I had said, hey, I want us to get profitable. I want us to grow slow. I want us to keep a lot of this money in the bank. We are not going to go on a spending spree. We're not going to try and expand our market. We're going to keep focused. And you know, work on, I don't know, customer happiness and that kind of stuff. Sure. I yeah. think they would have supported it. I really do. Mm. But also the incentives of the venture model are, okay, you have seven to 10 years to try and return, hopefully 10x, 20x, 50x, the amount invested. How are you going to do that in, in a very mm. short period, right? And it's how do I find the, what they call hockey stick growth? Mm. And, and that requires breaking a lot of eggs and usually not having any omelets left at the end. It's tough, right? <laughs> yeah, man. I I mean, nobody says that field is easy. At the no. same time, I think what's, what's fr very frustrating to me is how few alternatives are presented despite many alternatives existing. And, and I think that will continue. <laughs> so I, here's my, here's my one hope. I, this is very, this is very macroeconomics, right? But essentially the venture capital field and, and sort of the whole concept of let's build a startup with the goal of being a monopoly someday. And, you know, we, we realize that probably we'll, we'll not make it there. That whole structure is centered around essentially a legal loophole in the tax code in the U.S. Capital gains, right? right? Long-term capital gains rate is the only reason that this asset class is more invested in and profitable than, for example, saying, hey, let's invest in a hundred small businesses that are going to be mm -hmm. profitable for a long time that'll make money, that can pay us dividends. Investors don't want dividends because they will pay ordinary income tax rates on it, or they'll pay short-term cap gains or you know those kinds of things. What they want are businesses that are likely to die, but a few of them will have extraordinary IPOs or sales. So I think it's very probable that sometime in the next 20 years, the capital gains tax rate and the ordinary income tax rate in the US will match each other because I think that's what people in the US want. You know, regardless of political affiliation, that is something that Americans generally are like, yeah, why should investors make more money than ordinary people and why should they get taxed less? And I think the whole trickle down economics from the 80s, that thing is dying. That would dramatically change the game. That would make a lot more people want to put money into companies like SparkToro or, you know, an online Shopify retailer than a high risk tech business. 
I'll tell you what's very interesting about that because it's very it's similar here in Australia. Look, we've got a I've got an agency in in Austin and Texas as well, so I'm familiar with tax laws in the US yeah, and so on. Yeah. But here's what's very interesting about what the comments you've just made. It's no coincidence that a lot, right, a majority of SaaS businesses have these massive evaluations that are not profitable. Profit okay? is profit is bad for them, right? Like, if they're still on profits, yeah, no, they don't want it. So it's like they get these crazy multiples, right? Like you know, the other day, someone threw a pitch deck on my desk, two uh, 12 months old, you know, startup SaaS company, making about a million dollars worth of revenue, already valued at 200 mil. I'm like, right. And how did we get to that evaluation? And it's, it's crazy, right? And it's, there's so many of these that sell for crazy multiples and they're not, they don't, they're not profitable. They're just, like you said, the hockey stick, just grow, 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 grow. IPO, we're out onto the next one. To be fair to all of them, growth is valued by investors Be because of capital gains growth is far more valuable to investors than profits profits and Correct. and that's i think an equation that should change right i don't think growth at all costs and growth over profits is the right way to value companies i don't think that's the right way to build a stable and healthy economy you know, a, a lot of macroeconomic economists look at the United States and say, hey, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the U.S. had a substantial portion of its, you know, citizens employed by small and new businesses. Mm -hmm. And over the last 40 years, that has dropped, even though it seems sure. like we're in the gold rush of startups and everybody's doing their own thing. It, it is not true. We, we were actually in 2018 when I published Lost and Founder, we were at the lowest point in 50 years in terms of percent of, of you know, Americans employed at small or newer than five-year-old companies. Mm -hmm. That's not right. great, right? That's problematic. Yeah. A, an economy that rests on 10 or 20 really big businesses is incredibly vulnerable to changes in macroeconomic environment. You know, right. you look at something like the logistics supply chain. What, what if something like that happens in tech? You are talking about decimation right right i just think there's a there's a very high amount of risk there and and i would love to see i would love to see the us economy become frankly more like france germany italy because those countries are uh, much more distributed in terms right. of where people are employed i think i'm sure you can see this in australia right from from external you can you can look and be like why are Americans so addicted to working a certain number of hours for very low pay and getting treated abusively in their jobs? That doesn't that doesn't Mexico. seem like they're the richest country in the world. It kind of seems like they're falling behind. And it it's true, right? If you look at kind of the bottom 60% of Americans, they are doing not nearly as well as the bottom 30% of French people or or Germans mm. or Italians or Australians or Japanese. Like it it's it's rough at the midpoint of the American economy, right? And we we experienced this recently. You know, when Russ, um, the general manager of Austin, went over, and we started to build up a bit of a, a talent pool. Right, we're in a, in a in a growth phase at the moment as an agency, and one of the first things he said to me he said, "Rob, the talent here is is he goes, we've got a massive opportunity, right? We've come from a, a country like Australia, which is fairly young, and you know we are very different to the to the US. But he said people here." don't get paid a lot of money they work like slaves and they 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 generally want to do good work 
but a lot of the times because of bureaucracy they're controlled they can't right they're not able to express you know how their creativity and innovation and so on right because they're so confined in a certain way of working which is very much policed by the employer he said so we've got a very big opportunity here to bring some of that behavior and the mentality from australia into the us so I mean, it sounds great, but he's actually struggling a little bit with it because there's a big behavior shift. Yeah, very absolutely. big behavior shift. Like you're undoing someone's DNA almost, and <laughs> you know, and, and rebuilding them again. Right? It's it's very foreign and very strange to them. I think that's exactly exactly right. You know, when you've grown up in an environment that sort of trained you one particular way, you're acclimatized to those values and and that sort of expectations, and so changing that is is really hard. One of the interesting things that we're, we're doing with SparkTora, you know, we've been focusing on this like idea of chill work that essentially, you know, if, if you put in 30 hours in a week and you get all your stuff that you need to get done done, that's fantastic. Mm. I, don't work, I, don't, I don't want you working any more than that. I don't want to work any more than that. I, I want to sure. work the exact amount in order to get the most important things done. And I want to say no to most things because they're not important to the company and they're not important sure. to how we're going to make progress long-term. Very frankly, that's been very effective. You know, um, mm. SparkToro is, is a little over a million dollars in, in you know, uh, MRR. And that's with three people working very chill hours. You know, there's occasionally a week where I work more than 40 hours and have late nights and that kind of thing. Sure. It's fine. And then there's a lot of weeks where, you know, it's 3 p.m. And I'm like, well, I think I'm going to go inside and make a fancy meal. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and there's weekends where I don't answer an email. It, it's great. It really fits with the structure of how we work best. It gives me the freedom and flexibility and, and Casey and Amanda as well. My two coworkers gives all of us the freedom and flexibility to prioritize things that are important. You know, Casey and Amanda both have kids. They, you know, they have lots of parental responsibilities. Sure. Their spouses work. That's great. SparkToro can enable that. And mm. it can also enable us to, you know, my wife and I spent three weeks in Italy after travel kind of opened up and we were able to see family there and, and friends. And it was amazing. I, I probably worked maybe two or three hours a day. Fantastic, right? Just that freedom was life-giving. I, I wouldn't trade that for the world and I wouldn't trade it for a whole lot more money either. Do you think, in your, in your opinion, Ray, do you, do you see that this is where the world is heading? Because I'm seeing a bit of a trend here, right? Especially with, you know, the great resignation, which is, I'm sure the US to some degree is experiencing it as well. You know, we're definitely experiencing here in, in, in Australia because our, our borders are closed. You know, there's not a lot of international talent. So we're seeing a big shift in just behavior in general, employee behavior. And the way that businesses are starting to, they're forced to adapt. It's no, it's no longer about like, it's not a choice. It's do or die. It's adapt or competitor A and B are basically going to just steal your talent and overtake because yeah. they're more flexible. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you my, my hope is that, yes, you're right, that this is a trend. It's starting sort of slow and steady, but more and more people are being attracted to it and wanting it mm -hmm. and wanting to build it and wanting to be part of it. And that goes you know, all the way from founders and executives down through to yeah. rank and file. That's what, that's my hope. I think it is happening. We can see it with some businesses and sectors. My fear, on the other hand, is that kind of the top 
five or ten percent of the information and knowledge workers with, with that are kind of most educated and sort of have the most resources are the ones that are doing that and everybody else it's not happening for them that right. that i really worry about i'm very fearful that this is a phase uh, yeah it's a it's a trend <laughs> among a certain kind of person like you and i and like the people sure. that we work with and you know a lot of people in whatever digital marketing and entrepreneurship and and tech and sectors where that's possible. And if you work at Walmart, forget about it. I'm worried right. about that. And, and this is probably where we'll see a bit of a divide. That worries me a lot. I, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think the French revolution's happening anytime <laughs> soon, but I do think there is, you know, there, there is rumblings and rightfully so, right. From people who historically might've been, you know, part of unions or mm -hmm. who historically might've had more, more power and influence because of the the value of their labor and the, their connection to you know the world around them, and that is fading. So I don't know. These are really these are heavy, heavy topics, man. Like, and I am not you know I'm not a professional economist or like you know I don't know politician of the proletariat or something. <laughs> but, but you know I I have frankly I I don't even think the economists right now even know or can predict what is going to happen, right? I mean, like a lot of their predictions have not gone to fruition. Like they're just, that they, they, a lot of them are saying like, we don't know, right? It's just a very strange world. I feel like it's, it's nearly impossible to predict economic changes at, right. you know, with, when human beings who are so incredibly complex, just one person is so complex. How are you yeah. going to predict the behavior of, of hundreds of millions or billions of people? But, you know, what I, what I do think is that we have a choice. You and I and the people listening to this, we all have a choice about what we want to invest in regardless of the rest of the macroeconomic environment. I, mm -hmm. And I think what, you know, what I want to try and do with SparkToro is to serve as an example to other people that they that they can right. point to, right? That they can point to SparkToro, they can point to Wildbit, they can point to Balsamic and they can say mm -hmm. those companies are doing something that I want to do. I want to build that type of culture. I want to build that type of expectation. How do I structure a business that is designed to last for a long time and be profitable and focuses on survivability and sustainability over growth and team happiness and, and personal sort of chill work environments over hustle culture? Can I do that? Is that going to be, you know, something that that you can point to? That's That's what I want to try and pave a roadmap for you're, de you're defining and almost pioneering the new world of business yeah to some degree i mean, I mean it's kind it's of pretty big right right but yeah in a lot of ways it's it's, it's very strange right to be like yeah. what's spark toro like well it's kind of funded how businesses in like the 1950s would have been funded you know a bunch of people got together right. put in some money and now we pay them dividends every year based on if we make money back to basics yeah, it's it's a right. lot of back to basics, right? And we're back to like working fewer hours and it's and different. hunting the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Spark Toro, give me the elevator pitch. Audience platform. Sure. What what's it all about? Rob in you know, in agency world in entrepreneurship world, one of the most valuable things that you can do is get detailed information about who your potential customers are and where you can reach them and what they interact with and what they follow and read and watch and talk about and 
which hashtags they use and what podcasts they listen to, all that, all that type of important audience research data. Right. It's very painful to get it right now. You can get mm -hmm. it through interviews, some of it, surveys, surveys. potentially, or uh, this is illegal and highly unethical and immoral. You should not do this by any means, but conceivably the best possible way to get detailed data on what your customers do and, and how you could best reach them is get their home addresses, break into their houses, <laughs> steal their phone, <laughs> right? Get their unlock code for the phone and then and then go through and look at, you know, everything they subscribe to on YouTube and all the subreddits they're part of and who they follow on all the social networks and, uh, you know, which podcast they've subscribed to and what email newsletters, all that data. Now, like I said, highly illegal. Don't don't you dare do this. But good news, about 25, 30 percent of people put all that data out there publicly on their public social profiles, uh -huh. right? You can right. go to, yeah. if you go to my YouTube page, you'll see all the channels I've subscribed to, right? If you go to my right. iTunes page, you'll see all the podcasts I've left reviews for. If you go to my, whatever, Google Maps, you'll see all the businesses I've left reviews. If you go to my Twitter, you'll see everyone I follow. If you go to my Facebook, you can see every group I'm part of that's public. All that data is not just public, it's crawlable, right? Google crawls right. that stuff every day. And so the idea that we had with SparkToro was essentially, what if we could just do that for the whole internet? Like we'll crawl every public profile out there. And so when you search for dentists in Canada or interior designers in Australia, we can tell you that 14.7% of people who use the word interior designer in their bio or their job title who are located in Australia follow this particular publication and 13% follow this one and 12% listen to this podcast and 11% use the hashtag, I don't know, Aussie design and you know, whatever it is, that data is available for about 80 million public profiles, uh, English language in SparkToro today. And that's what our customers primarily use it for. They, they do audience research of all kinds to inform their marketing strategy and individual tactics and content and PR and, you know, all of that stuff. And it's very cool. Like it's, it's awesome that we're able to do it. It's fairly novel. There's not a lot of folks doing this right now. And you can kind of be very confident in the data, which I think is a powerful thing, right? Because right. this is, this is all real people, right? We have a very particular system for making sure we only crawl human beings profiles and include them rather than like bots or propaganda accounts. Or those right, kinds right. Of things. Yeah, yeah. Because that was going to be my question. Like, how do you how do you filter through spam and bots and so on? Yeah, right. so we have this tool called fake followers. It's just for Twitter publicly, but but you can kind of see the methodology that we use to filter out fake versus real accounts. And is your ideal ICP, I guess, is it more targeted at agencies or is it more like in-house marketing teams or essentially really anybody that's looking for audience audience data, right? Um, the list is quite long. We, I had someone ask me recently, one of our investors was like, Hey, who are your like primary clients? And, um, the, so we have about, I think a little over a thousand customers. It is around almost 40% agencies. Right. And then it's a, maybe another 30% in-house at a brand that's between, you know, a small brand and, and maybe uh mid-sized brands. We don't have a lot of enterprises, a few. And then there's another 30% that are like, you know, educational institutions, NGOs, um, 
political consultants, uh, Board of Trade of New Zealand, wow. <laughs> you know, uh, the Wildlife Association of Canada, like all, all sorts of National Parks Wildlife Association. It's all sorts of folks who are trying to learn more about their audience and what they pay attention to and do on the web so that they can do a whole bunch of things, right? I want to do better PR. I want to do better ad targeting. I want to figure out who to have as a guest on my podcast that'll reach the audience I want to reach, right? There's <laughs> podcasters who use, use us for that. Um, there's people who are like, oh, I want to figure out which speakers to invite to my conference or my webinar that'll bring with them the right audiences. So who are those people? There's you know, the NGO folks who are like basically trying to figure out demographic data about people who follow particular media organizations. I get the use cases are broad. Do, do better marketing. This is like your purpose. Yeah, it's like Rand at Moz. It's like, you know, I help people do better marketing, right? <laughs> it's like Spark Torah, same thing, right? It's like helping people do better marketing, right? This is, I mean, I, I'm sort of going on a bit of a tangent here, but like, Rand, is this your purpose in life? Is this why Rand yeah. gets out of bed and exists? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Spark Toro kind of has these two joint purposes for me. One is how do we pave the path for other entrepreneurs and founders, like build a, right. a chill work business? Yeah. And, and two, how do we help lots and lots of businesses and organizations of all kinds kind of break the Google, Facebook duopoly chains on their marketing? Mm. Like you don't need to spend 90% of your ad dollars and, and marketing budget on those two companies, but almost everyone does because yeah. it's very hard to figure out what the other options are. Like, how do I figure out what else my audience is paying attention to? Maybe, you know, maybe Rob's newsletter would drive vastly more traffic and value for me than a Google ad, but I don't know how to even find Rob's newsletter and know that my audience pays attention to it. So, you know what? Google ads it is. And it's probably easier to do it this way, right? The latter. <laughs> Throw money at Google. Yeah. So my hope, right, is that SparkToro gives people that alternative insight. That it that it takes a data driven approach that you can trust and believe in. Because the methodology is super simple, right? There's no right. fancy algorithms, no machine learning, no models. It's just like, okay, well, 712 of these 14,000 people pay attention to this, so that's 20%. So here's you know whatever it is. Nice and simple. And Rand, what's the what's on the roadmap for the next 12 months to three years? You know, our big goal next year is we're, we're hoping to be able to build up enough cash reserves to pay our investors back. You know, that's part of our, our model is, is, is structured that way. And one of the big things we'll be doing next year, because we've heard a lot of interest in it, is overtime tracking. So right now, SparkToro is very much like, you know, a search research tool. You, you go in, you search for something, you get a bunch of results. You can build lists from that and stuff, but it doesn't track anything for you. If you want right. to see how that audience is behaving next month, you got to go back in do, do it again. again. Yeah. And we've been finding that a lot of folks, both agency and in-house, actually have interest in the same audience every week or two, right? They want to get, okay, right. what are the new podcasts that they're listening to? What are the new hashtags they're using? What are the new topics of discussion among this group? What are the new social accounts that they're following? What are the rising websites? Which ones are falling in interest you? All that kind of stuff is really, really interesting to folks. And so we think that's something we should build, right? We should just be able, you should be able to say, I care about this audience all the time, every week or every two weeks, like send me an update about what they're, what's changing with them. And, and we should be able to do that. Um, 
So I think that'll be very interesting. And then you can kind of present a report, you know, that shows like, okay, over the last six months, here's who's rising, here's who's falling, here's what topics are getting more interesting, all that kind of stuff. The other thing that's big is uh, a lot of folks have been asking us for not just English. So that, right. <laughs> my co-founder Casey is like, oh, I've been learning a lot of German recently. <laughs> 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 uh, just, yeah, it's an adventure for him. He's, he's not a <laughs> linguistics guy at all, and, uh, but he's doing an admirable job. So he's, he's basically trying to sort out, he's using a lot of Google Translate, <laughs> trying to sort out. <laughs> you know, what, how do we index German profiles, Spanish profiles as the first two? And then probably after that, I think French, Dutch, Japanese are, are on the list too. Right. Awesome. So you've definitely got your hands full, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially for only three people, right? You know? Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it sounds like a very lean business and congratulations. It sounds like a, an amazing business. In fact, oh. I want to go and test this tool out for myself after this. I'm going to get the guys. Yeah. To yeah. Some, uh... By all means. So it's free. You can, you know, you can run a bunch of free searches and, and see some of the data in there. So yeah, please right. go, go to town. Absolutely. And obviously if I can help just drop me a line, but this is one of the things that we wanted to do too, is like have the paid side of the business, but also make a very robust free version. So lots of people could get you know, right. There's a, lot of a really good that, right? sense of the product. Yeah. Get some value. Yeah. Find, go find some, you know, publications and podcasts and stuff that are useful to you. And then if that was effective, go do some more. So when you're not trying to change the entire business landscape, right? What do you do for fun? I hear that you're a bit of a cook. Yeah, yeah. You um, like a great pasta? Yeah. In fact, uh, I think tonight going to make some skirt steak tacos. So Ooh. have those uh, chilling in the fridge. And I am hoping to get to get better. I made Kung Pao chicken for the first time this uh, okay. this week with like the Szechuan right. numbing peppers. That was really fun. Right. You know, take the peppers, and, like smash them, toast them you know, throw them in with the chicken and the peanuts and everything. It was, it was fun. And, you know, you really get that tingly sense on your tongue. It's, it was good. And I, and I read uh, just off topic again, I read a bit of a fun fact that you proposed to your now wife on television. With, with a TV <laughs> I, ad, with a TV with, ad. With a, with a TV ad, right? And I think it, it, it landed you on the Oprah show. Eventually, about yeah. it. I'm curious, right? What were you thinking? How did how did you end up on a TV commercial? <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, this is a long time ago. Geraldine and I have been we have been together uh, 20 years as of December 1st. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. Uh, and married for 13 of those. So a long, awesome. long time. And yeah, this you know this proposal thing was like it was kind of like this weird website that was trying to at the time, like raise money to buy a Super Bowl ad. The guy who was running the website, I didn't start it. The guy who was running that website, his girlfriend found out she didn't want any part of it. And so he was, in, he was a Moz reader. He read the blog. And so he right. emailed me and he was like, hey, man, I, I think maybe you should take this over because I've been reading about you and, you know, this girl that you're seeing and like, you, you, should, you should take this over and propose to Geraldine. And I was like, eh. Okay. All right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that'll be fun. You know, that sounds interesting. And so I took over the website and then it started getting all this attention and media stuff. And I was taking like all these early morning calls with like radio stations in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> who were like, this crazy guy wants to propose to his girlfriend on the Super Bowl. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And, and eventually target the, the mer mass merchant uh, retailer here in the U S 
reached out and they were like, come to Minneapolis, film an ad for Target. We'll put it on the Super Bowl for you. So I flew to Minneapolis and I, Rob, I proposed to Geraldine about 300 times over the course of nine hours of filming. (laughs) Um, Got very practiced at that. But Target pulled the ad before the Super Bowl, thank God, because otherwise I'd be like some pop culture footnote, which would be awful. (laughs) Uh, And so I just filmed a local TV commercial that was the same thing and then paid a couple thousand bucks to the local TV station. And they ran it during a show that Geraldine watched on like, I don't know, the Tuesday night, a couple weeks after the Super Bowl. And she saw it that uh, and we hit a camera in the room. So it's on YouTube. So you can kind of see her freaking out anyway. Blah, blah, blah. She said yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it worked. It worked. <laughs> that, that's all that really matters. Yeah. That's all that matters. Right. Were you actually with her when it when she saw it on TV? Oh, yeah. No, we were watching TV together. I was nervous oh, wow. as heck. Well, <laughs> yeah. So you, you knew she was coming. She had no idea what was about to hit her. But I, um, you know, you don't know. When you buy a TV ad, they don't tell you which commercial break it's going to happen at. Right? This was live TV. Right. Like, this is before... <laughs> This is back when all TV was live TV. There was no, you know, Netflix or, or you know, hit pause on your TV remote. Like, no, 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 right. no. Nerve wracking. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. I love it. Randall, I guess like, man, for like all the entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs, marketers that are listening right now, right? If you had like, and you're a wealth of knowledge and experience, right? If you had like three main tips you could give right now, what would they be? Gosh, and I'm sure there's I, lots, right? I'm sure there's heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps, but like three core tips that you find that would really add value to our listeners right now. I think for a lot of folks who are thinking about building their first business, I see this with a lot of young entrepreneurs. This is something I wish I had done. I would recommend that you join at least one or two other early stage companies before you start your own. I think you'll learn an incredible amount, even if the experience is terrible, even if you, whatever, you you know, hate your boss and, and you're sort of like, gosh, they're doing everything wrong here. That's still incredibly valuable. The learning experience. I wish I had done that. Just joined one other startup, even for like nine months or a year, just to like, just to get a sense of what it's like and and where the pitfalls are and what I do and don't want to do. I wish you're you're learning what not to do. Right. So that's exactly man. big lesson. Second, second big thing is I think for a lot of marketers and entrepreneurs, there's this pressure or, or phantom pressure to go try and do everything to serve all the kinds of customers and build a product that does, you know, many different things for many different people and market in all the different channels and be on TikTok and be on Reddit and be on YouTube and be on Discord and have your Slack and have your... Mm-hmm. YouTube and have your, you know, Twitter and Instagram. And I don't think either of those on the product side or the marketing side is the right way to go. I think you should pick a small audience who is underserved that you can serve better than anyone else. And you should target your product to exactly them. And you should not worry, especially in the early stages about trying to scale to, you know, millions of customers. Right. If you delight a few people, that is a powerful way to get a business off the ground. And you can often replicate that strategy with new groups as you want to grow. On the marketing side of that equation, you don't have to be everywhere. I, you know, I think Gary Vaynerchuk has sort of popularized this idea of like, you've got to be in all the places. Mm-hmm. You don't. You can do very, very good marketing, better marketing, in fact, by picking 
one or two channels, one or two tactics that you're really good at that really work for your audience where you have personal passion and interest and you can provide unique value. And if that's just Instagram, fine. And if it's just YouTube, that's fine. And if it's just a podcast, that's okay. And if you're doing just an email newsletter, that's all right too. And you can expand, like I said, you can expand to one other channel. Maybe you've got a great email newsletter and you're going to expand to Twitter to like bring a lot of people to wow. your email newsletter. Great. That's a good combo. Maybe you are uh, really great at one-to-one -one sales. Fantastic. LinkedIn and one-to-one -one sales can do incredible work for you. You don't have to be everywhere. Uh, and then the third and last tip that I think I'd give folks is when you are well-rested and in, in good physical fitness condition and you are feeling chill and things are going kind of well for you emotionally and, and mentally and physically, you make the best decisions. Work flows out of you quickly. You, you know, you have to reply to 50 emails. If you are exhausted and tired and it is, you know, hour 50 of your work week, those emails will take you 20 minutes per email and it'll feel like a lifetime and you're working all these hours. And if you come back on Monday and you're super well rested and you had a great weekend, you played a bunch of cool video games and like your brain is in good shape, you can fly through those emails. I'm sure everyone, everyone who's listening has been on vacation and come back to, oh my God, I have like three weeks of work to do. How will I ever get through it? And then you find yourself on Wednesday and you're like, man, I did it all. How, how did I catch up so fast? Oh, wait a minute. It's because your brain was working at a high capacity, a much higher capacity than it normally does. Maybe think about optimizing for that high capacity brain work by giving yourself the freedom to recharge and rest and vacation and relax and do the things that are going to put you in the mental state where you can make your best choices. This is most important of all for leaders, because what is the job of a leader? It is to make great decisions. It's not your quantity of output that matters most. You're not picking up a box and putting it in the truck and how many boxes can you put in the truck in how many hours. Your job is to make great decisions. And your best decision making comes when you're in the best headspace. That, my friend, is the best advice. And I can personally relate to a lot of this. You know, for, for many, I'm sure 2021 has been a big year right? Yeah. It's been a very tough year. And, you know, for a lot of us, we've been running on empty for, for, for pretty much the entire year. And I, you know, full vulnerability here, like I've made some really bad decisions this year. And, you know, if I had to put it down to one single thing, it's that I mentally was not stable. I was burning out. I was overworked. I was doing crazy amount of hours. I was adding to a lot of my own stresses, which led me down the path of making some wrong decisions, which, you know, subsequently I've had to you know, rectify, but that advice right there, like I, I actually, I will back that um, 150% because if you're not right upstairs, everything else falls to pieces. Even in some instances, you could be in the best physical shape, but if your mental shape is not right, it doesn't help. Yeah. You physically look good. That's it. But mentally, internally, <laughs> you know, you're, 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 you're crumbling, right? You're falling to pieces. And particularly like, you know, for a lot of higher positions and leaders is like, you're absolutely right. If you're foggy, you're impaired in your decision-making. It's not, you're not thinking clear enough to be able to even make 
the, the, the decision. So a lot of the times it's very, it's either an impulsive decision or not well thought through. So that advice there, I, I would definitely back. And I think, um, yeah, anyone that's going into 2022, it's like take the time over the next few weeks, right? To just unplug, de-stress, go off the grid, digital detox, all of it, and have a great 2022 because it's going to be a big year for a lot. <laughs> Rand, my man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for jumping on the show. Uh, for our listeners, how do we find you? Where are you most active? Yeah, yeah. So I am probably most active. My my most active channel is Twitter, where I'm at Randfish. Uh, I also write on the SparkToro blog, which is just sparktoro.com slash blog. And I'm happy to be helpful to anyone. If I can, my email is rand at sparktoro.com. Awesome, my man. Thank you heaps. We'll obviously put these in the notes. Rand, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you very much for jumping on. I look forward to potentially even catching up in person next, next time in the States. Ooh, that would be exciting indeed. Absolutely. Right, you take care, Absolutely. Rob. Cheers. Thanks, Rand. Appreciate it, man.